Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. This week, we're going to take your hand and walk you confidently into 2020 with a guide to the year ahead from some of the brightest minds we have here at Bloomberg Economics. Our chief economist, Tom Orlick, senior trade reporter and scoopmeister, Sean Donnan, and our European economy reporter, Jana Randau. We're sitting all in different studios in Washington, London and Frankfurt, and we're just going to chat together about what might happen in 2020 and what it could all mean. I start with trepidation because I'm mindful that we spent a lot of time in 2019 thinking and talking about stuff we didn't expect to be talking about this time last year. Protests in Hong Kong, for example, or Chile. Not to mention interest rate cuts by the US Central Bank. A year ago, remember, we were expecting monetary policy to be tightening this year. And more bond purchases and printing money by the European Central Bank. We weren't expecting that. Not to mention Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister, for goodness sake. So we all know we're going to be surprised by what happens in the year ahead. And this is about just looking ahead what we can see. But very briefly, I wanted to ask all three of you, what was your most memorable moment covering the global economy in 2019? Tom Orlick. So back in November, we were in Beijing for the New Economy Forum um, and Wang Qishan, arguably the second most powerful leader in China, took to the stage. Um, and there he was speaking to an assembled crowd of the most powerful chief executives, government leaders, thought leaders from around the world. And there's so many questions about China, questions about the trade war, questions about what's happening in Hong Kong. Uh, and here was a moment where uh, Wang could have really addressed those questions. Uh, and he didn't do it. He gave uh, a powerful speech which spoke to China's domestic political agenda. And what struck me about that was that we really just don't have a meeting of minds right now. The US and China, the trade conflict between US and China, which has really defined the global economy this year, um, is really just seen in, in completely different terms in DC and in Beijing. It was a problem in 2019, could well be a big problem in 2020 as well. Sean Donnan. So my most memorable uh, moment in 2019 had to be sitting in a barn with Lorenda Overman, who is a hog farmer in North Carolina, has lived on this uh, piece of land for 37 years. It's been her husband's family since the Civil War. And she had just had the worst year that she had had in 37 years as a result of the trade wars and the impact on pretty much everything she raises or grows. Uh, It had meant that she had stopped cutting checks to her son and her son-in-law who worked on the farm. And that meant that, as she said to me, she was literally taking the food out of the mouths of her grandchildren. It was a pretty amazing thing. She was, you know, close to tears as she was laying out the finances. She ran through uh, commodity prices and what that meant for her own personal finances. And then she got to the end of it all and told me that she still remained a strong supporter of Donald Trump. And to me, that was the paradox in the U.S. economy and in these trade wars in 2019, that tension between the people who are getting hit or suffered as a result of the trade wars and their continuing support for Donald Trump. And whether that continues into 2020 is the big question. Yana Randall. 
For me, it was uh, the ECB's decision in September. So Mario Draghi, just a few weeks away from the end of his term, announcing a massive stimulus package, a rate cut deeper below zero, quantitative easing, more favorable terms of long-term loans, bunch of other things. And that was just showing how severely the euro area economy was hit by the trade war, by uncertainty, uh, how vulnerable the economy was. Sean, I guess we have to start where we ended 2019 with Donald Trump's trade wars. I mean, they completely dominated the outlook for the world economy quite a lot in 2019. And I think particularly when many economists were writing their look-aheads for this coming year, um, the prospects looked pretty menacing. It seemed like there was a rising chance of a global recession in part because of trade wars. By the time we got to Christmas, things looked calmer. Will Donald Trump settle for what he has on China and retire gracefully? Or can we expect something else? Well, I, I think it's first of all worth kind of benchmarking where we are. And, and the point that we ended 2019 at and we're starting 2020 at is a lot worse than the point we ended 2018 and, and started 2019 at. And there's a lot more tariffs in place uh, on trade between the world's two largest economies. And even though we've had this phase one deal that uh, should be signed in the coming weeks, uh, it has not gotten rid of those tariffs or that drag on on the global economy that they that they represent, uh, so that I think that's one point is is we have gotten to and this is a kind of Donald Trump effect. We've gotten to a point where we think of calm as a lack of escalation, but we forget how far we've escalated and 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 where we are there. And I think that's worth remembering. The second thing is is I, you know Donald Trump is if we were going to look at it through a rational political lens and we we're going to look at what he's he's done with China. Uh, it would make a lot of sense to kind of pause the trade wars here, uh, have some negotiations go on through 2020, and uh, and and leave it there, and and leave any further deals or achievements or escalations if they need to come until after the November election. But this is Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is unpredictable, and it could be something as simple as a poll coming out showing that he's trailing in Iowa at some point, or uh, trailing somewhere in the manufacturing states, which is going to be really important in the election, that may cause further action. So, I mean, it's I'm dodging the question there, but it's th- th- there's a reason for that, in that we're dealing with a president who's more unpredictable than any other we've had beforehand. Tom, I mean, Sean makes a good point that we are going into this year. I mean, Donald Trump has normalised a lot of things, uh, heaven knows, but we ha- he has to some extent normalised having tariffs in a way that we didn't we, w- we didn't think of that as a normal fixture of the environment, at least of the level they are now, um, even uh, a couple of years ago. That has an impact on the global economy. If we have a sort of steady state of uncertainty around trade, but no real escalation the kind of thing that Sean just described, you know, what does that mean for the global economy and I guess particularly for China? So we've run a bunch of numbers on this one, Stephanie. If we look at a a plausible base case of tariffs rolling back some way towards the May 2019 levels and some reduction in uncertainty, um, then we're looking at a boost to global GDP, we think, of around 0.3% in 2020. So that's not nothing. It's about $270 billion. Um, And China, which has been one of the main losers from the trade war, does a little bit better again. 
Um, but I would certainly echo uh, Sean's point on this. Uh, we don't have to go very far back in history. Buenos Aires at end of 2018, Osaka in summer 2019, to remember positive moments in the US-China trade conflict, which evaporated almost before the leaders' jets uh, had taken off on the runway. There's a bunch of uncertainties in this deal. Where's the extra $200 billion in Chinese purchases going to come from? What's the US going to offer in terms of tariff rollback? What commitments is China going to make in terms of intellectual property? Um, so the baseline is tentatively positive. There's a bunch of stuff that could go wrong. And actually, I should say at this point, the very observant listeners will note that we don't have anyone talking from Asia for this conversation. This time of year, I wasn't very keen on making people stay up really, really late to be on uh, the line. But luckily, we do have uh, Tom, who lived 11 years in Beijing. We were there together um, in November. Um Tom, I think President Trump would say he had a good year in 2019. Sorry, he would say he had a great year, minus that small matter of the impeachment. Would President Xi Jinping say that? I think President Xi Jinping would certainly say that he's had a great year uh, and he would be resoundingly echoed by his fellow members of the Chinese <laughs> leadership, uh, the Chinese official press. <laughs> it's quite hard to find anyone these days who's willing to express a negative view um, on President Xi or his achievements. OK, so he's pres- President Xi in his bath alone. Would he, would he look back and actually also be looking into 2020 and think, yes, I'm in an OK state? The, the reality, I think, Stephanie, is that If we think about the problems which China has faced in 2019, um, to a large extent, they reflect a strategic miscalculation which took place um, in the past few years. Um, The Belt and Road Initiative, the Made in China, the China 2025 initiative, both of these were really ambitious plans um, which kind of proclaimed China's arrival on the world stage. The Belt and Road Initiative was China's arrival in terms of international relations, building infrastructure across the world, wielding more political influence across the world. Um, the China 2025 plan announced China's arrival as, a, as an ambitious technological power, an ambitious technology power, um, the staking their claim for ownership of the technologies which would um, determine the pattern of winners and losers in the global economy going forward. And both of these things just rang really loud alarm bells in the rest of the world, especially here in Washington, D.C. And I think the origin of the trade war partly goes back to that overreach by China. So I think 2019 was a year where China avoided the worst possible outcome. They've ended the year with a trade truce. They haven't made very, very significant concessions to the U.S. on things like intellectual property, technology transfer, industrial subsidies. Um, So in that sense, I think they can claim a victory. But why do they find themselves in this new difficult position facing a newly hostile U.S. and newly hostile world? I think it's because of those strategic missteps over the past few years. I suspect we'll get back to China's role in the the future of the of the global recovery um a little bit later but Jan I want to want to bring you in uh, with a with a european perspective i mean germany was one of the economies worst hit by the trade wars in 2019 i mean worst hit in many ways than um the us or china because it's so bound up with the global trading system um how would you say things are looking now for 2020 in germany and i guess the eurozone economy generally I think if you had to sum it 
sum it up in one sentence, you would say, we can be lucky that oh, if it doesn't get any worse. So there are signs that both the German economy and the Eurozone economy have stabilized. Um, for the past couple of months, we've seen some indicators uh, suggesting an ever so slow pickup in momentum. Others have pointed to setbacks. So right now we're in this in this phase uh, where the optimists say we're about to bottom out. If you look at momentum over 2020 or forecast momentum over 2020, it won't pick up significantly. So we're not talking about any V-shaped recoveries here. Um, we're talking about very, very um, slow growth, a stabilization at the current level. So the, fo- the forecasts don't look any better next year than they, than they do look now. The problem really is that the manufacturing slump has been so deep. Um, the recession in, in industry has been so severe uh, that there is only so much domestic demand, private consumption, investment can do to offset that. And we're starting to see that confidence is also declining in, in the domestic economy uh, you see labor markets being slowly affected. And it's that very th- that very fine line we're walking at the moment where things can improve from here, but it won't take much for things to get significantly worse. So I think we need to be very, very careful in looking at uh, what the German and the Eurozone economy can do over the next couple of months and over the next couple of quarters. Now, listening to Christine Lagarde, the, the new ECB president, she said risks are still on the downside, but she also made sure to uh, stress in her in her first public uh, press conference, in her first official remarks on monetary policy, that those risks from trade, those risks from protectionism, from vulnerabilities in emerging markets uh, have actually diminished somewhat. So there is a willingness to be optimistic and and see the signs of improvement. But people are also very, very aware that things can go terribly wrong. Yeah, and I guess it's a reminder, you know, when we we do think about the overall picture for the economy in 2020, you know, we tend to say, you know, everything's reliant on the consumer. And if you're sitting in the US or even the UK, very consumer-led economies, that kind of sounds like good news because it's such a big... Um, it's always the source of momentum in the economy. But but countries like Germany, uh, which have have in, to some extent struggled to have that more consumer driven side, uh, have been so dependent on manufacturing. It is a it is a potential weakness that we are now so dependent on consumption globally. I mean, Jana, I should also ask you about new leadership in Europe. Uh, you know. There was a famous question about, you know, if I want to call Europe, who do I call? I mean, all of those top jobs changed hands in the last 12 months, not just at the European Central Bank, you mentioned, but a lot of you know the, the key jobs in Brussels at the European Commission um, and such. I mean, will, will, will ordinary people or even uh, failing that, the people listening to Stephanomics notice anything different with this new leadership? Are they going to try and make their mark? I think so, and I think we already have, to be honest. Um, the past commission, the past leadership uh, of Europe was still very much engulfed in crisis fighting or picking up uh, the pieces after after Europe's debt crisis. It's not Remember, it's not too long ago that Greece almost dropped out. So it, it was very much fixing the problems, um, but not very much time for problems that, that 
are inevitably coming our way in the future. And I think Ursula von der Leyen, the new uh, Commission president, set out a very ambitious agenda. She made very, very clear that her commission, her uh, her term will be about defining and shaping Europe's future. So it's about transforming society. It's about uh, fighting climate change, about making countries and society ready for um, a life in, in uh, embracing new technologies. Um, but also uh, to look at uh, aging society, um, looking at how demographic shifts will affect living and, and sustaining economies in, in Europe in particular. So I think uh, the agenda the Commission set out is very ambitious. We've heard the first the first ideas about what they want to do on climate in, in particular. It's a very it's a topic that will be with us um, probably for for a very long time. Uh, and particularly next year. So I think we've already seen that they have ambitious plans and how much of those will materialize that we will find out, I suppose. <laughs> and it will be interesting this year. I mean, I think 2019 was definitely a year when the urgency of the climate debate uh, became much more evident uh, to people. It entered the mainstream, especially in Europe. And it's interesting, we've also, we have now seen the president um, in the, the, the head of the commission putting that Green New Deal on the agenda. You know, will we see a lot more practical action in 2020? You know, this would be the obvious time for me to say something about Brexit. But you know what? I'm not going to because we've talked plenty about Brexit on this podcast and um, many other podcasts. I guess the only thing I'll say is that I can say with quite a lot of confidence that uh, but in the next few months, sometime in 2020, almost certainly the end of January, Britain will have Brexited. We will have left, but there will still be plenty of uncertainty about what our future relationships are going to be, well, pretty much with anyone. I mean, at the end of 2019, it looked possible, maybe not likely, but possible that the UK would be coming into 2020 with a radical left winger as Prime Minister, Jeremy Corbyn. That didn't happen. But at the end of this year, we could have a US president about to take office with an agenda that's almost as radical as Corbyn's, uh, looking at some of the Democratic, the, the leading Democratic uh, candidates, you know, Assume one of those, uh, say Elizabeth Warren, has won the presidency. How do you think that would change how we would see the global econ economic outlook in a year? So I think there's a prior question there, Stephanie, um, and that's will the US Democratic Party look at what happened in the UK election and say, OK, there's a lesson here for us. The UK Labour Party tried uh, a radical agenda it didn't resonate at the ballot box. Maybe we need to think about that when we're making a decision between a Biden and a Warren and a Sanders. But let's say they go ahead. Let's say we get one of the more progressive Democrat leaders um, coming into the 2020 election and winning. If we think about the international aspect of it, the most important thing is trade policy. And my reading of the sort of the tea leaves, um, the sort of initial policy statements from the Democrat candidates is actually they're going to be as tough on trade as Donald Trump is. But I think it's also fair to say that they would be more predictable. There'd be a policy process. There'd be more transparency. There'd be announcements rather than tweets. And when we look at the drag from the trade war, a bunch of it has come from tariffs 
but a bunch of it has come from uncertainty as well. If the uncertainty goes down, if the predictability goes up, that's going to be a positive for global growth. Um, second aspect of it is the domestic agenda. Uh, and here too, there's a, there's a prior question, which is Democrats might well win the presidency. Do they win the Senate? If they don't win the Senate, it's going to be very difficult for them to push through any far-reaching domestic policy reforms. Uh, and so I think we'd be looking very much at the kind of the status quo in terms of U.S. tax policy, for example. Um, if they do win the Senate, which is going to be a stretch, um, then I think we would be looking at a more ambitious domestic reform agenda. Uh, we'd be looking at changes in tax policy. We'd be looking at changes in healthcare policy. And I think one of the impacts of that would be margin compression for the US corporate sector with pretty far-reaching implications for the markets. It was, it was interesting that uh, there had not been a lot of discussion around the economic or the potential market impact of a Trump victory until he was actually elected. And then everyone claimed to be not at all surprised by the US stock markets, you know, soaring upwards. Um, you know, sometimes these things become obvious only uh, only just after something's happened. So, you know, we'll see. But Sean, if you looked at the booking odds right now, you would say a Trump victory was more likely than not, in part because the US economy looks like it's going to continue to be okay, even with the uncertainty you talked about and the tariffs from the trade wars. You have spent a, a good chunk of, I'm rather jealous actually, you've spent a good chunk of the last few months out in the field. We heard your discussion uh, on Stephanomics around the places you'd been in North Carolina. You've been to Granite City. You've been on the Mississippi. Uh, when you cut through it all and you talk to these people, has the trade war been good or bad for Trump's chances of re-election? I think... If there is one weakness in Donald Trump's economic argument going into the 2020 election, it is the impact of his trade wars on swing states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, even Ohio. And what we've seen in all of those places is a slowdown in manufacturing growth and in some cases a the start of layoffs in manufacturing, some of which is tied directly to the trade wars and impact of, of everything from rising costs due to tariffs on inputs from China or steel, uh, but also just the damper on demand uh, that you've had, the uh, retaliation uh, that you've had from the Chinese, which means U.S. exports to China are going down. And that, you know, while the U.S. exported less to China or exports less to China than it, than it imports, that's still an important market for a lot of American companies. Uh, so you're starting to see that filter through the economy where, you know, it started off in the agricultural sector. We saw it a lot in agricultural equipment suppliers early on. We're now seeing it in the trucking business. Uh, you know, a few uh, years ago or a year ago even, uh, the, uh, you know, one great promise uh if you were a young blue collar man who might support Donald Trump in terms of employment was uh, signing up as a truck driver where they were offering good salaries and benefits and trucking companies were shortening delivery routes so that they were more family friendly and so on. Well, Trucking companies are starting to lay off people. We're seeing truck makers start to lay off people. We're seeing diesel engine makers starting to lay off people. So that kind of industrial economy in America, a lot of which is con is uh, concentrated in 
those important swing states uh, is weakening. And how that carries through in 2020 is going to be really important to the election prospects of Donald Trump. I mean, we need to remember that all of these swing states were states that Donald Trump won by not many votes. It's not like you take a 5% swing even in those states for a Democrat to win them. It could be less than 1% that swings. And if you have you know, just enough people who are slightly disenchanted with Donald Trump's economic policies, uh, or more broadly with his presidency, uh, those, you know, the fort- his fortunes could change very quickly in those states. Well, of course, you know, the irony is that a lot of those states were supposedly the kind of voters that he was doing the trade war for. I mean, it is, it is um, perhaps going to be a striking feature of, of 2020 in the UK as well, that the places where you've got this more nationalistic uh, and potentially protectionist policies um, end up hurting the very people who who voted for it uh, and damaging their their interests more more than anyone. But we shall we shall see how that plays out. I'm not going to get anyone to um, call uh, the result of the U.S. presidential election. I am going to remind uh, listeners that Michael Bloomberg, the majority owner of Bloomberg News, is running for president himself, uh, running at least for and for the for the Democratic uh, candidacy. But Tom. In your gut, do you think we will get to the November U.S. election with the U.S. and the global economy still looking broadly okay? We know it's not great, but still in decent shape. So I was really interested to hear uh, Sean's on the ground uh, observations from some of those swing states and how the trade war has been impacting them. If we're thinking about the U.S. economy as a whole, though, we've got unemployment at the lowest level since the late 1960s. The November job report, which remember came in at a very robust 266,000 new jobs, significantly changed the narrative on where we're going into 2020. Um, I think few people now expect a recession in the year ahead. Most people, including us, expect low unemployment, rising wages, robust consumption to keep growth chugging along. Uh, I think the bet has to be when we look at the national picture, President Trump's going to be coming into the 2020 election with a pretty strong economy behind him. I started with some of the stories that caught us by surprise in 2019. There'll be plenty more surprises in 2020, we know. But what are you all especially looking out for uh, possible places for surprises that could could really matter for the global economy. Yana Randa. I'm keeping my eye on trade, on uncertainty about the economic outlook, and um, especially on inflation, because the numbers we've seen on wages, they are actually coming up. The labor market is not looking too shabby. Uh, in fact, we have uh, unemployment close to a record low across most of the region. So I am I am really um, looking out for for inflation to pick up. Now it's not uh, in the official statistics, but there there is a risk that that um, we will see a slight increase. Yeah. You heard it here first. The correspondent from Frankfurt is worried about inflation. Um, Sean Donnan. I'm going to be spending 2020 looking at those swing states uh, and what's happening in industrial America. The big wild card, though, uh, in 2020. 20- 
2020 may come from China. We ended 2019 with a wave of corporate defaults uh, coming out of China, and it's starting to filter into the government sector there. Uh, that could build into something more consequential for both China and the global economy. Tom. So if we think about the global economy in 2019, uh, I think the first word which pops into everyone's head is trade. Um, But I think we can make a case that actually the most important word to characterize the global economy in 2019 has been uncertainty. Um, Let me give you three really brief examples. First, U.S. trade policy uncertainty, that surprise move on Mexico, all of the surprises on China, uh, which Sean, Jenny Leonard and others have reported on so well over the course of the year. Um, Secondly, Brexit, all of that misinformation about the positives and negatives of Brexit, the scope to get negotiations done quickly or not. And thirdly, China. This was probably below most people's radar, um, but there was a report which came out in the middle of the year by some really serious Chinese academics with involvement from an advisor to the People's Bank of China. And it said, you know what? China's GDP growth for the last five years hasn't actually been 6 to 7%. It's been 4%. And so on some of the most important dimensions of the global economy, there's just a really elevated level of uncertainty uh, and I'm reminded uh, of a famous statement by uh, by Hannah Arendt, the great 20th century philosopher, uh, made in a very different context, but I think really relevant to the type of situation we face today. Um, and she said, when all we hear are lies, the consequence is not that we start believing lies, it's that we stop believing anything. Um, And I think the biggest risk for the economy globally in heading into 2020 and further forwards is that in this kind of miasma of misinformation, um, the uncertainty which has clouded the outlook this year just proves really hard to lift. And that uncertainty premium, that uncertainty drag stays in place and drags on global growth going forwards. Well said. Thanks, Tom. I mean, having if I'm going to give myself a, a few wild cards, um, having been made a cheap joke about Yana and inflation, I actually agree with her that that would be the big surprise for markets and others this year. And let's face it, it's perfectly likely when you have a consumer-led economy uh, driven recovery um, with a problem on the investment side. In that, in those circumstances, we often have seen inflation in the past. I guess the other obvious go-to place for surprises and uh, problems would be Italy. We could certainly have a flare-up at any time in Italy. And finally, I think we have to remember the potential seriousness of what's happening in Hong Kong and how that could actually uh, reverberate, not just on the geopolitical front, but potentially economically as well. Plenty to think about. Thank you very much to uh, everyone here, Jana Randau, Tom Orlick and Sean Donnan. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do take the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen. Special thanks to Sean Donnan, Tom Orlick and Jana Randau. Scott Lamman is our executive producer and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Lee.